There was a, a sitcom back in the 1950s. I know that's a long time for many of you. Uh, I only saw the reruns, <laughs> you know, for sure. And um, called Father Knows Best. Does anyone here remember that at all? Any old folks? Okay, just a few uh, of the old folks here along with me. And uh, it was a sitcom. Abraham Lincoln uh, saw it before he went in to make some of his famous speeches. It was a sitcom where typically in the 50s, you had a family where a, a man of the house would come home with a suit, and to, to really relax, all he would do is take off his jacket, hang it up, and still have his tie on the entire night. I and mean, that's where TV was back then. But he would go into his study, whether it's Ward Cleaver of Leave it to Beaver, or Robert Young, who played the role uh, in Father Knows Best. He would go down, sit in his study, and his children would come and get great advice from him. And it was always, it, it, Ward Cleaver missed it a few times, but Robert Young never missed it. And he always gave the right advice. Now, the reason he could do that is because the script was written in such a way that writers knew where the story was going to go. And therefore, it was easy to make wise decisions. Now, if we were to be honest with ourselves this morning, we would have to say it's impossible do you hear me right? It's impossible on our own to make the right decisions all the time. It just is. Because for us, we'd have to not only know the writer, but we'd have to know where the story's going. Maybe there's someone here that is praying about, I don't know, moving to Atlanta. Well, how is that going to work out for you? You have no idea. You just make the most educated decision you can make and just sort of how you feel and so you move to Atlanta, and you have no idea whether that's going to work out for you or not. Someone's thinking about maybe having uh, their fifth or sixth child. <clears throat> I can tell you how that's going to work out for you, but you can see me later on that. <clears throat> no, but seriously, you, you don't know how that's really going to play out in life. No matter what you do, you would have to, in order to make, guarantee yourself making the right decision on everything in your life, you would have to know the future. You'd have to know Every choice that you make, all the ramifications of that one, you say, mm, don't want to make that one. How about this one? I'll make this one. I'll, I'll stay here in Orlando. And that, that is God's will for your life. But anyway, and then there's another one over here. You make another decision over here, and, and you think, okay, now I know all the alternatives. I know all the implications, the ramifications, the results. Now I can make an informed decision, but nobody can do that. Now, we've been in a series of messages on seven reasons you can trust God. And this whole year, we're going to be touching on the whole aspect of really trusting God with your life, not only with your future that we'll talk about, more we'll touch on this this morning, but also in the, all the trials and troubles and tribulations that you go through in life, the times that you feel like giving up. And so we look at seven reasons, and our key verse comes from 11, Hebrews 11.6, where it says, that it's impossible to please God without faith. But he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him or diligently or fervently seek him. And so the first week we looked at the, the fact that God exists. If you're going to please God, you got to believe God exists and that God's going to reward those who really follow him. Then last week we looked at the power of God. Now we want to look at the wisdom of God, but we want to do it in such a way that we look at the ingredients of that wisdom. And Psalm 139 gives us that. Now we've been in this series, we've asked three questions. Basically, can he? Because anytime you go to God in prayer, 
Anytime you want direction, you always ask the same three questions in your mind. Can he? Will he? Does he love me enough? And will he do it for me? In other words, what's my part in it all? Now, as we look this morning at still at can he, we look at God's resume on how he has the wisdom and then our response. Know this. We know we can trust him because he has all the tools he needs to bring wisdom, guidance, and direction in our lives. Let me say that again. We know we can trust him because he has all the tools he needs to bring wisdom, guidance, and direction to our lives. Psalm 139, let me just give you a little background because we look at this and we think, well, David was writing this psalm, and let's face it, David uh, was a king. He kind of had it made, didn't he? Well, David was actually under a great amount of persecution here. We don't know the exact, the exact time of this. There were two different times where he was under extreme persecution. This is one of those times. So he's out in the wilderness. He's out in the cave. He's maybe by himself. Otherwise, his mighty men were around him. He was being chased off from his own kingdom. And so he was questioning God in a lot of ways. And this was a journey. Now, keep in mind, when somebody wrote a psalm, it's like writing maybe your testimony. First you lived it, and then you wrote about it. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And in Psalm 139, we first of all look at a resume. Now, you have maybe resumes in your life. You've been looking for a job. So what do you put down on that? You put down things like uh, your, your criteria for the job, your experience, your education. Maybe you write down your successes, not your failures, but just your successes. And so there's a resume there. And so what's God's resume for we can follow him? Because, I mean, let's face it, if we had, we knew someone that had all the knowledge of the future and was really there for us, then wouldn't you want to trust that kind of wisdom? Wouldn't you rather like to go into his study, you might say, sit down and get the wisdom that you need to make the right choices in life? Let's look at it. First of all, the resume. What God knows. What does God know? I mean, after all, if we're going to have wise decisions, we need to know all the ramifications of all the choices. So what does it say here? Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. He says, you have, you've dug deep within my soul and you know me. What does he know? Well, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. In other words, you know every move that I make, everything. And then he says, you, have, you know my motives. You acquainted, he says, uh, excuse me, verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. Not only does he know our every move, but he knows the motives behind the moves. Then look at verse 3. You search out my path. Am I lying down and I, I get acquainted with all my ways? Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You, you know my path. You know where I'm coming from. You know where I'm going. Not only that, but you know every single word even before I speak it. Now, we call this theologically the omniscience of God, that God knows everything, past, present, and future, and there is nothing that God does not know. Even our speech, even the things, uh, you know, you've said before when you, you've gotten really disgusted with life and irritated with life. Uh, you know, some of you guys, yes, God heard you that fifth time you were in the sand trap and just couldn't get out. He heard what you, what you said, you know. And so God hears all these things, and there's nothing that God 
hasn't seen nor heard. Now, the psalmist says this is two thing, there's two things about this kind of knowledge. It's a blessing to us, and yet it is a conflict with us as well. We read about it beginning of verse 5. You hem me in behind and therefore, but your hand, lay your hand upon me. God's hand is upon our lives. Now, this is great that God knows what? My, my disappointments in life? You're disappointed with life. Disappointed with something that's going on in your life right now. You're disappointed you've lost a boyfriend, girlfriend. You've, you've lost uh, maybe some money. You've, you've lost a job. God knows the disappointments we have. Psalm 31.7 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. Pam and I went to a concert this past week, um, Amy Grant, and some of you were, were there. I noticed on Facebook. And some of the songs that she wrote, I, I didn't even know she wrote some of them, but some of the songs she wrote had a lot of deep reflection. And she even mentioned a couple of times that life's hard. Life's hard. Some of you have been through a lot of hard things, she says. It's amazing that last, this past week I saw someone that um, I hadn't seen in a long time, just kind of in passing in a store. And um, I said, hey, how's it going? Hey, God's good all the time, but life is hard. And sometimes we feel that way because sometimes it really is. But God knows that. He knows where we're going. He knows our deepest needs in our life. Jesus said, therefore, don't be anxious. Don't be worried about saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear for the Gentiles? The lost piece said, the people that don't know Christ seek after those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you have need of those things. Your finances, your job. The decision you're trying to make, the deepest needs of your heart, God knows that. And He knows your destiny, and which that's what really this whole message is really kind of all about when you think about it. God knows your future. Very famous verse, for I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord, uh, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So God knows all those things. We take comfort in that. And the psalmist says, God, your hand has been resting upon me. His providential care is there for us. But he also struggles here because it's also the knowledge of God is kind of a threat to us. Notice what he says in verse 5. You hem me in. You've trapped me. I feel trapped. I feel like I'm, I'm hemmed in. Things are just, he says, things are too wonderful for me. Look in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Now, we think, oh, man, the wonders of God. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is, it's so awesome, God. I can't even think about it. I can't think about the ramifications of what you know about my life. He's saying it's awesome in an awful way. He's saying, God, this is, this is not good because I can't hide from you. I can't go anywhere. There, there's nothing that you don't know about my life. And so we read on in verse, in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. I can't be where you want me to be. I, I can't do that on my own. Just can't. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your, your presence? This word flee has the same, it's the same Hebrew word that we find in the book of Jonah when he, he fled from God. And he fled to, to, uh, on, on the ship to Tarshish. And so the psalmist is saying, David is saying, look, on the one hand, your hand's on me, but God, there's, there's conflict here. 
because on the other hand, this knowledge is just, when I think about it, it's just too wonderful for me. It's too awesome. And I'm threatened by it, God, because I'm not, I can't attain it. I'm not where I need to be. But I'm, I recall a story in Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, I believe it is, the story of Zacchaeus. Some of you know it, the wee little man, right? Wee little man was he. Little Bible story in Sunday school. There he was a tax collector, had stolen money from many, many people, and it was almost a legal way, really, of stealing. And Zacchaeus was a small man. He ran up a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus passing by the way. Jesus looked up to him, and he said, Zacchaeus. He knew his name, and he knew everything about him. But yet he said, I'm having dinner at your house tonight. He knew him. He saw him, but he still loved him. And God still loves us in spite of all that that we bring, the trappings and the and the, and the junk that we bring about in our life, God still loves us. But here's the conflict. He knows this. On the one hand, I just I want to forget about all this. I just want to do my own thing, run my own life. On the other hand, I won't have the wisdom of God. God's hand will not be upon my life. And so now we find in the midst of this that there was a time that he was struggling with it. Then I want you to know not only that, but he goes on. He's reflecting upon God probably being alone at least at this time. And he says in verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. So where is God? God is everywhere. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. That can be translated hell or the grave, depending on the, the passage. But either way, his emphasis here, there's nowhere I can go. Whether it's heaven, the grave, hell, the earth, I can't get out of your presence. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, what is he saying? Well, the wings of the morning, the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. The west is the Mediterranean Sea. So he's saying, whether it's east or west, east and west never meet. I can never get away from the presence of God. If, verse uh, 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He goes back. He says, you, you hold me. Your hand is upon me. Now, you're going to lead me. On the other hand, I'm wanting to run. On the other hand, I'm wanting to run to you. Same struggles that we have. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me it be a night, even the darkness is not dark to you. I, I even tried... There's no room I can go in and just hide and cut off the lights. There's nothing that I can do that's out of your sight. I can't run from you. I can't get away from you. He says, the night is bright as a day, for darkness is light with you. This is called the omnipresence of God. God's everywhere. That doesn't mean that God is, we're not pantheists. It's not that God is in everything. God's just everywhere. He's right here in this room. Now, you may not feel it because the Bible calls that really the manifest of the glory of God, the, the manifest presence of God when we feel it. So you may not feel it all the time, but he's always there. There's nowhere that God is not, whether it's the darkness, whether it's the day, east and west, he's with you all the time. In fact, he is the God of the I am. Remember back uh, when Moses was appearing before that burning bush and God was in the burning bush, and he said, I want you, God said, I want you to go into Egypt 
and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses' reply was, who shall I say sent me? And God answered, I am sent you. Now, that was a name for God, and we translate that Jehovah, or, um, uh, and, uh, but in the, in the reality of it, what he's saying, what that means is, I am the God of the present. I'm here all the time. The, the future is present to me. The, the present is present to me. The past is present to me because God is spirit, and he's not bound and limited by time and space. It's like we're on a train track going down the road of life, and we're going around hills, and we can't see around the hills. And God's up on a mountain, and he sees the train that we, we've, the track that we've come from, the track that we're in, because there is a present to us, and the future where we're going. But he can see it all at once, just like it was the present to him. And the psalmist recognizes that. David recognizes that. And so he says, therefore, as we're looking at this, you're never alone. You may be in a, in a lunchroom somewhere, and you're sitting by yourself, but you're not alone. You may be eating dinner. Some of you that are, have gone through the tragedy of divorce or losing a loved one uh, to death, and you're sitting there in a restaurant by yourself, and you see all the families around you being uh, just happy and, and uh, giddy, and, and you're there alone. You're not alone. God is there with you. There's never a time when you're alone. There's never a, a time where God cannot see you in your despair. His hand is upon you. And that means he has the wisdom of God. Father does know best because he is not only knowing the future, but he's there. He's there. He can see it. It's, a, it's there already for him to see. But then I want you to see something different here in verse 13 because normally you would see this as an example of God's omnipotence or his power. We looked at that last week. But I want us to look at the feeling now behind the power. How does God feel? Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He's talking about being in the mother's womb even before. He's loving us and forming us even before we were born. Now, I'd say don't make this something political. You know, certainly the Bible teaches that where life begins at conception. There's no question about that. It talks about abortion, euthanasia, uh, suicide. You, I'm not saying you can't go to heaven if you have suicide. The Bible doesn't e- exactly say that. And so let's don't look at a silent of Scripture and back up some doctrine. It just simply means you're taking God's hand out of the situation and taking on something for yourself in a permanent way. But notice what he says here. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Here, it's just pure praise, pure worship, no fear, no conflict. My frame frame was hidden from you. When I was, rather, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed or ordained for me. Now, when you and I take, um, we'll say, a deacon or a minister, and we ordain them, what we're saying as a church, we're setting them aside for ministry. God has set us aside for something special. We're special to God. There's no one uniquely, we're unique. There's no one like us. In the old Bill Gaither song, children's song, I'm just going to read one verse, and this comes from the father and then the child 
would respond, and maybe the mother and different ones in the song. Let me just read you in, in interest of time from the Father. He says, when Jesus sent you to us, we loved you from the start. You were just a bit of sunshine from heaven to our hearts. Not just another baby, because since the world began, there's been something special for you in His plan. That's why He made you special. You're the only one of your kind. God gave you a body and a bright, healthy mind. He has, special, he has a special purpose that He wanted you to find. He made you something special. You're the only one of your kind. And so God has ordained a plan for you. And the way He feels about you, remember, He knows everything about you. Everything. He sees you where you are even right now because He's here. And yet He loves you. And now He has a plan for your life. And if you don't accomplish that plan, who's going to do that? There's going to be a hole. Something's going to be missing. He's ordained all those years for you. So how do you respond to all that? How do we respond? We see His resume, but how do we respond? I want you to notice He responds in two ways, worship and surrender. Verse 19. Let's just read verse 17 first. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Wow, he really uh, takes a turn here. And, you know, I'm looking at this and some people, oh, you know, uh, this is a passage I can finally follow, you know, um, praying like this. So let's look at it. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Um, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You say, well, man, that's really bad. And six times in the book of Psalms, I think it is, David did this and other psalmists did it as well. So what was he talking about? The word hate here is despise, which is not any better maybe, but a little bit. But what he's saying here is this. He said, these people pull me. They're, they're trying to, like Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed is the man who standeth not in the way of sinners, or sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He's saying, these people, these ungodly people are pulling me. I'm, I'm being pulled to deny you. I'm being pulled to give up. I'm being pulled to be so discouraged that I'm willing to just throw in the towel. But he says, I'm not going to do that, God. I'm going to be loyal to you, and I'm going to reject the behavior and reject those people from my life. We can find this in 2 Corinthians where uh, Paul is saying to us, he says, come out from among them and be you a separate people. Well, if we find this again in Psalm 1, Joshua 1, that we are to be different. We're not to be loyal to the crowd. And I'm afraid, as I've said before, we are more like we are more like the culture than we want to believe. We allow those around us to form us more than what we want to admit. We think, hey, you know, no, I stand alone. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that's kind of the, you know, I hate to say it, the Marlboro man, you know, out in the wilderness somewhere riding on a, a horse and all by myself, just me and the cattle. That's not us. That's not. We're formed oftentimes by the opinions of other. We're drawn into it. We're more like men of our time and people of our time than we want to admit. 
even the things that we're talking about in the Bible these days. We would not be even, what we're doing, we're not so much denying Scripture. I mean, that's part of it. But we're, we're reinterpreting the Scripture to fit our culture in many places in the Bible, not just one or two. It's just sort of, you know, how is this going to fit me better? How is this going to fit the culture better? How is it going to be fitted so people won't look at me like I'm an idiot or something for believing what I believe? We form that. And David says, not me. Not anymore. I see I want God's hand on me more than I want to go with the crowd, more than I want to even give up. And a lot of his is not getting into sin. A lot of his is just plain out giving up and going another direction in life. And he says, I declare my loyalty to you, O Lord. Then he says in verse 23, a surrender. And this is really the heart and the explanation of the passage. He prays now for four things. Search me, O God, number one. Know my heart, number two. Number three, try me and know my thoughts. And then finally, and see if there are any grievous way in me. Lead me, the fourth thing, lead me in the way everlasting. Four things. There's a struggle here still. But now he comes to the end of the psalm. And he says, in spite of my struggle, I'm surrendering to the Lord. He says, things are just too awesome for me. And look back in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful. He struggles. Well, where, where am I going to go from your spirit? Over and over and over again, we see this struggle in life. I want to be free. I, I want to be the God of my own life. But yet, I have a choice, God of my own life or follow the God whose hand will be on me, whose wisdom I can really trust. What's it going to be? David struggled. What's it going to be? All of history now, all of Israel's history, all of our history is dependent upon his decision here. And he says, Lord, search me. Dig deep. Surgical removal of things in my life that are ungodly to you. And yet we struggle, don't we? We don't want to go to surgery. We, we want to run the, our own life. Scott Peck was, wrote a book. Scott Peck used to be kind of popular, I guess, 90s and 1990s, early 2000s. Psychologist wrote a lot of books. And he was talking to this one lady, Charlene, probably not her name. But she was just saying, hey, look, you know, um, doctor, I, I'm really struggling and I'm really haunted by the fact that I can't find meaning in life. And he says, well, I noticed that you uh, are churchgoer. What does your church say is the meaning to life? And she got real terse with him, and she said, I don't go to church anymore. I'm not a Christian anymore. And uh, I'd rather not talk about it. And he says, yeah, but you were raised in church, so evidently your church at least had a way to find meaning. So I'm not asking you whether you believe it or not, but what do they say? And she rolled her eyes. She said, oh, the meaning to life is to, you know, glorify God, join forever or something like that. It was almost as though this is what I've been taught as a child, but now you're just pulling it out of me. Don't even want to say it. And he said, well, what about that? What about that is meaning to life? How does that, how does that affect you? And even saying that, she, said, she just got mad about it. And she said, I don't want God in my life. I want to run my own life. I want to own my own life. I want it to be about me, me. And there's no room for me when I surrender to him. 
I want it to be about me, and I'm not following God. And he, but then she came back. She got calm. She says, but I just can't find meaning to life. Isn't that like, oh, Jonah. I want to run my own life. I want to be free. I want to flee. It's like so many people in the Bible. I just want to, I want to get out. I want to, I want to flee. Peter denying the Lord. I want to flee. Charlene, I want to flee. And yet, she struggles because why? On the one hand, she can flee and be the God of her own life to a certain extent. Not fully, just a little. But God's hand, meaning, purpose, all that, just it won't be there. And David's struggling. And he says, Lord, I've decided, search me. There's, there's wicked ways in me. And he, he says a grievous way here. And this whole idea of grievous is painful. He says, take out. He says, first of all, search me. Know my heart. You already know it, but help me to know my heart. That's what he's saying. Reveal to, my, my, to me my heart because we don't know ourselves. I don't know me. You don't know you. You say, well, pastor, haven't you taken that Briggs-Meyer thing, you know, kind of ESPN or whatever the letters are? Well, yeah, I've had that several times, and I've disagreed with myself every time I've taken it. Only God knows you. Only God knows me. He says, know me, God. Help me to see myself as, as you see me. And he says, try me. Know my thoughts and see if there's any. He said, try me and know my, even my thoughts, my evil thoughts, my painful. That's what it, this word means, painful. It reminds me of the prayer of Jabez. Back in the Old Testament, where he says, Jabez called upon the name of the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me, enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might, might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. That's the only thing about Jabez in the Bible, but a whole book. In fact, I know two books written about this one verse. And the word Jabez means pain. That's what his name means. Can you imagine his mother gave birth to him, and he said, man, you are a pain. You brought me pain. And maybe the whole, his whole life he's thinking about to himself, I, don't want, I just don't want to bring anybody else pain. Because that's what happens when we're going away from God. We bring grief, pain to ourselves, but also to others. I would that we would be more like what the writer of Chronicles was saying. He says, I, God has not seen, the world has not seen someone whose heart is completely his. He says in this way, the eyes of the Lord goes to and fro throughout the entire earth, strongly supporting those whose heart is completely his. I want to be that guy. David wanted to be that guy. I would rather, wouldn't you rather, have God's hand upon you even though he knows everything about you, even though you, you, can't, you can't hide anyway. You can't hide. You can't run. But because he knows, he's written the script. And you can give not only yourself advice, but really other people advice, in a sense, because you know the one who wrote the story. You know the one who looks ahead at the train tracks and know every, knows every bend in the road. And when you surrender to him, you will not only have his wisdom, but that's the only way possible 
we can make consistently wise decisions in life is to trust Him because the Father knows best. We can see this in the area of salvation, can't we? I think all of us here who have received Christ can identify with this. There's a struggle. There's a struggle as God begins to surgically move into our heart and say, you're a sinner separated from the Lord. There's things in your life you need forgiveness for. And you think, oh, I don't want to think about that. And you begin to flee. You begin to flee from church because you don't want to hear about that. You know, if the pastor mentions it, you know, I'm not coming back here. You flee. You flee from the one who can help you, the Lord. But at salvation, he begins to convict us in our heart. The Holy Spirit begins to draw us to salvation, and we struggle. For four years, I struggled. Everything in my life was going well until the age of 12, and I'll be talking about that in dinner with the pastor more this evening. But everything in my life was going well. 12 years old hit, I'm in a Sunday school class. I find out I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I mean, I was religious. You know, I like God. God was a good, good guy. I had no idea that I was saved. I could be saved by grace through faith, and it wasn't of me. And for four years, I, I fled that. But I found everything in my life, every decision I was making was the wrong decision. It wasn't good. And I just came to the place in my life, like David here was. Here I am, God. Here I am. Search me. Know my heart. Take away the pain from my life as a surrender to Jesus Christ. You've been through that. If you haven't been through that, you need to go through that. Maybe you're going through that even as we speak this morning. That struggle between surrendering to God and have His hand on your life and just simply going your own way and just taking the chance, taking, taking the chances. And you know that it's just not going to probably end well. You know, you know that. So what about you today? As a Christian, would you say to God today, Lord, I want to surrender to you. I want you to search my heart, know my thoughts, help me to see myself a little bit more the way you see me. Take away the pain from my life and lead me, lead me in the way of everlasting life. But if you're not a believer today, I, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus into your heart. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, I would like to give you an opportunity this morning to say to the Lord, Lord, I want you in my life, in my heart. I want you to search me even now. I want you to lead me in the way everlasting. I believe that the Bible says to us, you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And so I want you to call on him right now. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I want you to call on him right now in your own heart. And you can do that by praying your own prayer, or you can follow along with me silently as I pray aloud. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would search me now. I pray that you would help me to know my thoughts, know my heart. I pray that you would forgive me of all the ways of pain, of sin. Take it out of my life. I pray, God, I trust you today. I, I, just, I just trust you and surrender to you as the Lord of my life. As I ask you to come into my life and guide my life, lead me in the way everlasting today. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.